Greetings, everybody. It's Keith Billick here. I'm really glad to have you join me for the Picky Fingers podcast. We have Tony Trishka in the house today. And I guess by in the house, what I mean is I had a Zoom call and recorded it. And it's great because it's Tony and he's one of my absolute favorites. But man, I sure am looking forward to getting out there and doing some real in-person interviews. And in fact, I have already made plans. I'm going to do a little bit of a road trip in about a month to go gather up some new in-person interviews. So I, I know I've been complaining about it a lot, not being able to sit down with people in person. And you've all been very kind and forgiving in dealing with Zoom call sounds on the podcast. But uh, that's going to change soon, and I'm really looking forward to that. Free banjo stuff. Did that get your attention? Yes, I hope it did. I have things to give away to you, and this is all courtesy of Banjo Lit. For any of you who have not heard of Banjo Lit, they are makers of various banjo accessories and products. Most famously, they make the Dr. Arm wooden armrest, which is, I'll have to say, it's very much more comfortable than the standard metal armrests that uh, most banjos come with. So what I have is three prize packages from Banjo Lit. The first prize is going to be one of those Dr. Arm Mahogany Banjo Armrests, which are really great. Uh, Second and third prizes are going to get a uh, Banjo Lit t-shirt, as well as a coupon for other products and a sticker. So the main catch here is in order to be entered to win these prizes, you must be a Patreon supporter. So go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast, sign up on Patreon. Uh, this, the drawing for these prizes is going to be in early June. So the deadline to sign up on Patreon is going to be May 31st. So sign up by then and you will automatically be entered in the drawing for these three amazing prizes. So once again, that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast. And to check out Banjo Lit, go to banjolit.com. More Patreon news. I have Patreon supporters of the show to announce. Today's very special Patreon supporters are Dan Harder, who is a player in a band called Hot Dish up in Alaska. Hot Dish is a progressive bluegrass band up there. So if you ever find yourself up in that area, Track down a Hot Dish performance, and while you're there, track down Dan Harder and say hi or flash the Universal Banjo Player Gang sign, which is, I imagine it's probably holding your hand up and mimicking a forward roll pattern, something like that, so that, you know, we can identify each other in public places. So thank you once again, Dan Harder, for the Patreon support. The other supporter of today's show is Amy Thorne. Amy is a fully vaxxed novice banjo player down in Georgia and works as a TV news producer. So you know what I'm thinking. This is actually the first step toward global banjo domination. With Amy on our side, we've successfully infiltrated the media, folks. It won't be long now before we realize all of the fame and glory and riches that we banjo players deserve. So, Amy Thorne, thank you once again for your Patreon support and for helping, you know, the the global banjo domination efforts. And, uh, I don't know, gang sign and media infiltration. This is what I get for recording the podcast in the middle of the night. True story. The final thing to say about Patreon, um, there's just so much cool, exciting news. What can I say? Uh... A lot of you have heard that we are now doing VIP lounge meetups. That's very important picker lounge. And that is a a video meetup for a lot of the Patreon supporters. I host a video chat once a month and we just trade stories or question or advice or just just get to know each other and it's a lot of fun. We've we've done one already, and the next one is going to be uh, Sunday, May 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So for any of you VIPs out there, mark your calendars. That's uh, Sunday, May 23rd, 1 p.m. Eastern. And that's also posted on Patreon. If you want to be able to join up with those, make sure you visit patreon.com slash banjo podcast. 
and get yourself invited to this VIP lounge and all future ones. And there's all sorts of other prizes too. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Plus, you will be able to pat yourself on the back for supporting an independent podcast. And that in turn helps support your favorite banjo players. Today's freshly picked episode looks at the new album titled Shall We Hope by Tony Trishka. And this is a bit of a concept album that he actually alluded to at the end of his first interview with me, which was a while ago. This project has been a long time coming, but as you listen to it, you will see why it is a very elaborate soundscape. As I said, it was a concept album based around characters uh, that are in the era of the Civil War and the aftermath of that. And along the way, we meet enslaved Africans, we meet politicians, we meet soldiers, we meet wives of soldiers and family of soldiers, and everything in between, songs written mostly by Tony that uh, tell the tales of all those people. So it's a very interesting project with great music, great collaborators, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So please enjoy the interview here with Tony Trishka about his new album, Shall We Hope? So, Tony, thanks for taking the time to, to join me again. I've been enjoying your new, your new album, so I appreciate it, and congratulations with that. Thank you, Keith. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. Uh, one thing that anybody who listens to this will notice right off the bat is there are lots of tracks, each with a distinct cast of characters and different vibes, so I don't expect we're going to cover it very thoroughly. It actually jogged my memory to the last podcast you did uh, with me here was, it must have been toward the beginning of this project, because you actually mentioned it at the end of the of the interview that you were doing this Civil War theme uh, based around the the gambler role. Uh, but I didn't realize how ambitious of a project that was. And I'm wondering, you know, it took so much songwriting, uh, a lot of performers, musical arrangements. Was that always your vision from the beginning? Or was that something that evolved as you started composing and getting people involved in this? Well, this project was more of an evolution. In fact, it was totally an evolution almost till the last, not the last minute, but in the last year, I was still having ideas. Oh, I could try this and I could do this. So it kept changing. And as you mentioned, it started with the, what we're calling the Gambler song uh, on the Mississippi is what it's called on the album. And I just had an idea to write some songs because on my last album, Great Big World, uh, I'd written a song about Wild Bill Hickok. I felt he was underrepresented in the Western song canon. So I wrote a song about him. Uh, and really enjoyed the process of doing that. And then I thought, once that album was done, well, maybe I'll start writing some more lyrics. It's not; It didn't totally work out that way because of the Gambler song started even before Great Big World. But I just liked the idea of doing that. And I'd written kind of with every album, I would write one song in general. I'd be one song on there with lyrics. So it wasn't like I'd never written lyrics before. But this was a whole mammoth project to write all songs with lyrics, uh, with a couple of exceptions. Anyway, so the Gambler song was first, and at first I based it on a Jimmy Rogers Blue Yodel motif. So the music was just already there. It was basically Jimmy Rogers Blues, and I got Michael Davis, who's an amazing singer and guitar player, to uh, do the yodel, and, and we would actually do that at gigs. And I just wrote these lyrics about this gambler. So that's how it started. So you didn't initially imagine these soundscapes and this tour through the the Civil War all these viewpoints as it as it turned out that's correct no initially it was just that song i'll just write the song about a riverboat gambler and i don't know why i thought to do that but in my mind he'd be placed in the 1840s or 50s something like that uh -huh. and then i think the second the second song i wrote was the great train robbery which is called the general which was this yeah. you know these uh union spies 
hijacking a train, which is kind of hard. You can't sort of go anywhere. You got to stay on the track. And they were found out and were chased by this uh, Confederate train going in reverse. And the idea of the general uh, with these what these Union spies were supposed to be doing was tearing up railroad track or putting ties across the tracks and then uh, cutting down telegraph lines to set the stage for a, an attack by a Union general and troops to come in on, on a Confederate fortification. So anyway, I, and I'm not even sure why I chose that to do, but it just popped into my head to do that. <laughs> and then suddenly, okay, well, here we are in the mid-1800s. Now we're in the Civil War. And then at that point, things really started to move in terms of the evolution of this project because uh, I had it in my mind to have this character, Maura Kinnear, uh, come over from Ireland and meet uh, this guy Cyrus, Cyrus Noble, the gambler, and that they would meet in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And so it evolved there. And her husband died in a mine cave-in in Ireland, on the western coast of Ireland, which actually... The inspiration from that, for that came from this banjo player, John Dowling, who I know in England, whose father was a miner and told John Dowling, his son, about this mine cave-in. It was in England, actually, and that actually happened where the mine went out underneath the Atlantic Ocean, and at some point, the, everything just gave way, and the ocean caved in and caved in on the, all the miners, and they all perished. Wow. So that's where I got the inspiration for that setting for her to, you know, she loses her husband in the mine cave and, and comes to the United States. And that's Seamus, I think, is the is the lyric of... Right, exactly. Okay. Seamus Kinnear, yep. Let's get into some more of the music. The first three tracks feature uh, heavy on the sound design aspect, starts to introduce some of these characters, and really establishes a theatrical vibe to the album, I'm wondering if that's a way that you envision and uh, listeners enjoying this music. Was, was that part of your, was, was there a visual component to it in that way? There was, because from the, not right from the very beginning, but once it started to evolve and I started seeing this actually could be some sort of a theatrical presentation. And the sound design came later on, but okay, most of the tracks were recorded at that point. And then I decided, well, Let's have some of that sound design because I saw it as a theatrical production, and that's how we got the uh, the battle sounds at the beginning, the Clouds of War track, the first track, which was a combination of two or three sound tracks from a that was re- from reenactments, and it's just you know the sound quality is so great, and the engineer who I worked with Lawson White, who's just an incredible engineer. I've never had a sound like this on my album on any of my albums going all the way back it's just whatever he did and i don't know technically everything that he did but it was just amazing and he's the one that put together those soundscapes uh we went in you know and we had you know i I was there while he was doing it and had input on it but the idea of having the gunshot go off and then there's the tinnitus in the in, in cyrus's ear and all that he just came up with all that and then had this sort of spacey sound, and suddenly you hear John Lithgow or F- as FDR giving part of his speech, which is how the album ends. And by the word, so, right, so the whole thing is really uh, just going back in time from 1938. But anyway, Lawson White is responsible for all that, and just for all the sounds on the album, his the tones he got, just the sound quality. He put four mics on the banjo on every banjo I played. He had four mics, and I've never had better banjo sound on any album. Oh, I definitely am going to want to ask you about that. Uh, but going back to the theatrical aspect, I also noticed that you acknowledged um, Bob Waldman, who I guess I'll sh- I'll share. I had the pleasure of doing a, a community production of the Robert Bridegroom, which is something uh, a musical production that you originally wrote the banjo parts for. So I was aware of what this what the Robert Bridegroom is, but what was his particular involvement in this project? Well. We had done the Robert Bridegroom in 1976, and we spent a lot of time working with Bob because it was for the Broadway production, and he was, of course, very involved in that. And so, and we stayed friendly over the years, but we might not talk for 15 or 20 years, but we had such a rapport that when I started seeing the theatrical aspects of this, I decided to get in touch with him and see what sort of input he would have for the album as being more of a theatrical production. Some I don't remember that any of the ideas he gave me were actually used in this production, but they could be used uh, 
in other ways. In other words, there's a, one of the, his suggestions, which is great, was rather than, and I've had a couple of people tell me this, that there's so much to this story, there's so many aspects to it, that maybe it's easier just to pare it down to one, and this might be for a theatrical production, to one concept, and rather than trying to bring in all these different elements. And to that point, Bob Waldman was saying, one way you could start this off is to have the, um, because there's a a tune about, well, there's a whole section on uh, enslaved, this enslaved grave digger and that whole thing. And rather than having that in the middle, have that start out that way. And on stage, he said, you could, I could picture two or three people, including the enslaved grave digger. They're just standing around the grave as he's digging and they're talking about it. And, you know, he was, I mean, he had these great ideas, just which won't come to fruition, didn't come to fruition on the album. But it was just great for me to be able to bounce ideas off him. And here's a guy that did Broadway shows. And uh, so I was very fortunate to have his input. Right, right. Uh, So that takes us to, you already, track four is on the Mississippi called The Gambler's Song. And as you mentioned, that was the the genesis of all all this. We move then to Carry Me Over the Sea, which is a very distinctive Irish flavor. You know, there's Irish-themed lyrics it's in jig time Moro O'Connell is singing there's whistles was there something in, that inspired you to tell the stories of Irish soldiers well they're not Irish soldiers Irish soldiers easy for me to say uh, <laughs> no it was just uh, it was just about Mora Mora okay. Kinnear was that character there was not there was not a military aspect to it she just was in this situation where her husband died and she comes to the states and to make a better life, leaves her two children behind with family so she can start a new life and bring them over because it was the time of the, it was at the time of the potato famine. And one of the great lines in the song, and I can only say that because I didn't come up with come up with it. I came up with all the rest of it, but Maura O'Connell came up with as a coffin ship of exiled humanity. That was her line, and I think that's so intense. And I'd never heard the term coffin ship, but ships that came over to the States from Ireland at that time with people, you know, half starved to death on these, trying to make it to the States, uh, they would die en route. And so that's why they were called coffin ships. And so it was such a poignant and intense line to have in the song. And that's all thanks to Maura. I was meeting with her at uh, Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn's house in Nashville. And... Abigail Washburn, Abby, as I call her, uh, also contributed some ideas about her being a seamstress, and uh, so th- and she contributed another line. So there, I had a little help on that song, Maura and Abby uh, contributed. Yeah, developing the character a little more. Exactly, fleshing it out a little bit more, in a little more detail. And I tried to, I like the idea of adding detail. For instance, in that song, there's a line: "The road in front made of oyster shell." Because I, you know, I did research on all this, all of this, and found out in uh, in the Outer Banks they would because it's right on the sea. There would sometimes roads would be made of oyster shell. And I just like that detail in there. Uh, so, and, and one thing, if I can go back to the Gambler song just for a second, of course, I, I mentioned that originally it had the music was basically a Jimmy Rogers blue yodel. But after I got a ways into the album. And especially after writing uh, the song, This Favored Land, which I was so happy with and loved the way that came out, I felt like the general just sort of, or the, um, the, the on the Mississippi just kind of paled in comparison. So I just took it apart and rewrote all the music and had all new music for it and went back in and recorded it. So gotcha. what you hear on the album is not the original track, although that's somewhere in the can somewhere, that original <laughs> recording of that. And I guess I'll I'll also add for anybody who loves your music but is maybe hesitant to hear that what Tony's doing Civil War stuff there there's some hot picking on here too and and the end of that Gambler song definitely has a very familiar to Tony Trishka fans esque rave up of some instrumental stuff before we before we move on so I'll reassure people about that if in case anyone was worried yeah that was supposed to be just a fade out. You know, we'd play it a few times through, but fade out midway through the second time through. And everyone, if I may say, kicks such butt on that. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, Alex Hargraves on fiddle, who's 
the equal of any fiddler in the world. And uh, Dominic Leslie on mandolin, and uh, Michael Daves on guitar, and uh, Jared Engel on bass. And th those guys just killed it. And so I ended up just keeping the whole thing till it ended. It just and it ended like that, just naturally. Yeah, it'd be nice if whoever was playing the banjo on that would pull their weight, too, with all those other guys. But They pulled me along. Know. I was just being dragged <laughs> along, kicking and screaming. <laughs> no, no, it's great. I, I, I really enjoyed that part. Oh, I wanted to ask about the, uh, before we leave Carry Me Over the Sea with the, the Irish theme, talk about the banjo you used, which isn't necessarily... Uh, an Irish tenor banjo, but the way you play it is is pretty reminiscent of those single string type of lines that we hear in Irish music. But it's got that very low tuning. Talk uh, talk about the instrument that you used on that. I used a gold tone cello banjo on that, and it's an octave lower. Instead of being in regular G tuning, it's an octave lower in G. So you can play Foggy Mountain Breakdown on it, but it's an octave lower. And I really like those low sounds. John Hartford was the first person in the bluegrass world to start playing low-tuned, and he'd be down in an open E tuning, mm -hmm. once in a while D, but usually an E tuning. But, of course, the banjo in minstrel times, you know, in minstrel music, the very first banjo instruction books, it was down in basically an open D tuning. So, was it? So this okay. sort of historically, the banjo was a low-tuned instrument and moved up to E by 1860 and then wasn't really until 1900 that it became the G banjo that we know today. Yeah, it just keeps getting tighter and tighter, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and Snuffy Jenkins would play in A, open A tuning. He would just tune it up to oh, A. Really? Yeah, I had a chance to interview him a couple of times and played his banjo, and it was like, yeah. So anyway, who knows what's <laughs> next? Funny. Where are we going from here? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, and, and can so I just make one other point about the Irish song? Mm-hmm. Um, this happened on a number of occasions where I needed or wanted a particular instrument, and then suddenly the person I was talking to, oh, I do that, or I've got one of those here. A uh, couple of times with Lost and White, but in the case of the Irish tune, uh, Carry Me Over the Sea, when we were all done, we, I flew down to Nashville. We did the basic track in New York, and I flew to Nashville to add Morris' part. And the engineer was great, and we finished her overdub, and then I said, you know, Gosh, I really need something else, like either pipes, Uleon pipes, or penny whistle, something on here. And the the engineer said, "Oh, I play penny whistle. I do Irish penny whistle." So <laughs> of course, he, said, he does. <laughs> and we didn't have the time that day. He said, "Would you like me to overdub it, and you can tell me what you think?" And I went, "Sure." And like two days later, he sent me the, the track with the, his overdub on it, and it sounded. It's what you hear. It's great. Here's this great. Yeah, that's yeah, perfect. Exactly what I needed, and he did it. And that happened a couple of other times too. So. Oh, that's so cool when things fall into place like that. Uh, so the the general is the next tune, and I, I really want to highlight or take this opportunity to to mention that you wrote the vast majority of these songs. Like this one, I think I mentioned, gives me a real like 1952 Vincent Black Lightning vibe just in the overall storytelling nature. I think even the chord progression might be a little similar to it. So you're a very prolific banjo composer, but is it fair to say that you're maybe a somewhat less experienced lyricist? Is that is that a fair uh, assessment? That's a fair assessment, yes. And in fact, I did an interview with American Songwriter magazine, and I thought, what, what business do I have to be doing this with, I'm sure, <laughs> the millions of great songwriters they've got? But... I mean, but I really spent a lot of time working on the lyrics for all these songs. And I'd read, you know, tear them apart and put them back together again. And I've done a lot of writing over the years. I've written, you know, a lot of liner notes and articles and banjo instruction books. Uh, so I can write reasonably well, but mm -hmm. doing it in a lyrical sense. And, and I was actually reading 
Stephen Sondheim put out a couple of books about songwriting and about you know preparing for theater, and so I read some of those to get some of his ideas, also. But um, but yeah, so, I'm not, so, this is the most I've ever done, obviously, songwriting wise. Yeah, t- talk about the challenges of doing that, and then the next step is not only are you um, maybe new and in, in terms of that that level of participation with the lyrics but you're also not the singer. So you have to write the songs and then also find a way to communicate to the performers what you have in mind. You produced the the album as well. So just talk about all the challenges and how you managed to steer this ship uh, in a way that followed your vision. Well, my approach to recording and, and producing is pick the best people you can possibly find and let them do what they do best. So I'm not one of those dictatorial producers. Okay, you have to do this and this, especially with singers. You know, I'm, I'm not a singer. I know what I want to hear, though. And there were times when this is a, a sidebar, but I, I produced Steve Martin's uh, second album of the new era, Rare Bird Alert. And he, um, he got Paul McCartney and the Dixie Chicks on there, now the Chicks. And so I was producing their vocals, technically, <laughs> And I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to drop names, but just to make a case in point, especially like with the, with the, with Paul, I just said, okay, you know, just do what you do. Obviously I didn't say much. He just did it. And that sounds great. And with the chicks here, you know, these are heavy duty singers, a couple of whom I knew from years ago, but I'm telling them, you know, making suggestions for them. And they're like, what business, I mean, but I could hear what I wanted to hear, you know? So, and the same thing with these wonderful singers like Phoebe Hunt, or Michael Daves, or Maura O'Connell. And they would do stuff that I would never have thought of in a million years. You know, I wrote these melodies, and especially with Maura on the Irish tune, mm-hmm. she just changed it around. And Because rather than having the same melody for every verse, she took chances, incredible, beautiful chances with them. And Michael Daves, the same thing. So I just picked the best people who can sing their butts off and let them do what they do. And they always came up with stuff I never would have even conceived of. So... In a better way, you think? In a, in a better way, yeah. And, and it's dangerous yeah. for a banjo player to write lyrics uh, because I, the song about Wild Bill Hickok from the last album, I got Jack Elliott to sing half of the lyrics for it. And uh, Mike Compton sang the other half. They traded off. And Jack Elliott said, and it was sort of, a, not sort of, it was totally an honor to have him on there, but he said it was the hardest song he'd ever sung because the lyrics are so packed. You know, there's no time to breathe because I'm yeah. not a singer, and I oh, here's some lyrics here. Sing this, <sighs> and his, you know, he must have been out of breath when he did it. Uh, but I also worked um, with a guy named Mark Simos, who teaches songwriting at the Berkeley College of Music, and he's an amazing songwriter and has written songs for Alison Krauss, etc. And I got together with him on a couple of occasions when I was up in Boston, and he made suggestions on six or seven of the tunes, like maybe add a couple of beats here. He didn't change anything radically, but gave great ideas in terms of how to make it easier for the singer. So, and, and made some corrections where I had the, again, just like no chance to breathe. And you might want to consider, let's just let put a rest in here. And from that, I've kind of learned better how to write for singers. So you're able to take advantage of a little like pre-production yes, type of work. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Were you at all tempted when dealing with Paul McCartney to see how many times you could get away with Tell him to just do one more take. Like <laughs> you, you almost got it, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Just, just one more try. Yeah, yeah. I was constantly doing that. He he felt like he was done after five minutes. I said, "Come on, Paul, you can do better." <laughs> yeah. Now he actually it was just the opposite. We spent about forty five minutes overdubbing his vocal on this tune, and then I said, "I think we got it," you know. <laughs> and and then he came out. I'll just tell this little story because it's fun. He came yeah. out. And at the beginning, I said, would you like some water to drink? And he said, sure. And I gave him a bottle of water or a glass of water, whatever it was. And then he came out and said, uh, he said, I said, would you like to rehydrate, you know, after 45 minutes? And he said, and I'm standing like four feet away from him, three feet away from him. And he said, if Elvis Presley was singing, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, rocking all the time. He's singing as Elvis for about four seconds, a little bit of that. Oh, excuse me, uh, can I rehydrate? Or if the Beatles were singing, 
She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah. And here's Paul McCartney right there in front of me singing that. Uh, excuse me, could, could I rehydrate? And, you know, and he knows that we're all flipping out. You know, I mean, we're mm-hmm. being cool, but inside's like, God, gosh darn it, there's Paul McCartney singing She Loves You right here, right now, just a little snippet. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and then, anyway, he wanted to go back in and, and do, he went for another 15, 20 minutes to even get it better. So, without rehydrating, I think he did rehydrate as I remember it. So, <laughs> yeah, but I digress. No, if uh, Paul McCartney's stories will always be, be welcome on this podcast, even if he, <laughs> John Lennon started with the banjo, I think, but but Paul not so, not quite as cool as cool enough to do that for that one reason. Yes. Hey, folks! It's time for me to introduce you to a brand new Picky Fingers sponsor, and that's GHS Strings. Now, GHS might be a new sponsor, but uh, they're definitely not new to the string business. They've been making some of the best banjo strings on the market since 1964. They use their proprietary lock twist on the plain steel strings for incredible stability, extra large loops for easy installations on any tailpiece, and a wide range of gauged sets for every player. My personal favorite that I've been using for years is the PF145s, but they do have a lot of options for uh, whatever your preference is. And they're very durable, have a long lifespan, and probably my favorite part is that these things are made right down the street from me in Battle Creek, Michigan. So not only do I think they are the best strings out there, but I can feel good about supporting a local company. And I'm not the only one who thinks very highly of their strings. GHS strings are also used by J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, Todd Taylor, Bela Fleck, and a lot more. So go check out what they have to offer at their website, ghsstrings.com. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Peghead Nation, With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction, with courses including Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Each course includes high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play with. So what I need you to do is join any of Peghead Nation's video courses, and you're going to get your first month's free uh, just by being a Picky Fingers listener. Go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's all one word, all lowercase. And once again, that gets you your first month free at pegheadnation.com. The Picky Fingers podcast is also sponsored by Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments. We all know how cool it is to be able to support the locally owned mom and pop businesses rather than going to the big box stores. Well, with Elderly Instruments, you're getting a place that's been family owned since 1972 located in Lansing, Michigan, but they do ship worldwide. However, shopping at Elderly Instruments doesn't mean a compromise in quality. They have a vast selection of acoustic and electric guitars, banjos, ukuleles, mandolins, and all the accessories and books you might need. They have a world-renowned repair shop that sets up all the instruments, and perhaps most importantly, a down-to-earth knowledgeable sales staff that is there to help you with anything you need from advice on the high dollar vintage instrument that you're looking for right down to what picks you should buy they're happy to help and they're just a phone call or an internet search away go to elderly.com or call them at 517-372-7880 and tell them picky fingers sent you so you before you mentioned uh having a a section of the album and, and that's what we're getting into now starting with i know moonrise which is uh, a black spiritual number. I, I guess first things first, let's give kudos to Catherine Russell. Was that a one-woman performance, all those sounds that are on that track? Every sound on that track is done by Catherine Russell. Yeah, it's amazing. She sang all the parts. She came up with, you know, she played all the percussion. It's all her, and it's amazing. Amazing. 
what happened is I wanted to, well, I had a chance to go to this slave graveyard outside of Asheville, North Carolina. A friend of mine who I was staying with while I was down there doing the Swan and O gathering said, uh, he, he's a history professor at Warren Wilson College uh, in Asheville, and he said, would you like to go tomorrow morning? We're going to go out to the slave graveyard. And his students were clearing clearing the graveyard, and I said, sure. So I, we went out the next morning, and you get there. It's behind this church, and there's this plot of land with just mostly stones, just stones on the ground, and the stones indicated that a person was burying, buried there, and the grave digger the enslaved gravedigger's name was George Avery, who was doing this in the 1850s into the 1860s. Uh, and because they were enslaved, they were not worthy of having headstones. So just that indicated someone was buried there. And my friend, whose name is Keith also, did a seismic grounding just to see how many pe- people were buried there and came up with 1,900 souls were buried under the ground there. And they were buried originally in um, wicker baskets, which I refer to in that song. Uh, It it was just a really powerful experience. And the way it worked out was George Avery's enslaver, as the the war was ending, decided to free him because he could see that the Confederate uh, side was, you know, they were going to lose. So he said, why don't you go to northern lines and you can fight for the north and you'll have a, a pension that way because after the Emancipation Proclamation and after the end of the war, here are all these enslaved people who are now free. Now what? Mm-hmm. What what could they go to? What could, you know? They, what a scramble that must have been. Anyway, that whole character of George Avery, I conflated with a, another person named John Boston. The song or the lyric for which or the letter is written by Guy Davis. Is, sorry, read by Guy Davis. And I kind of created those two characters as one character, which I named John Boston. Right. So there's a a trilogy, I, I guess, of songs that are trying to capture somewhat the the African American experience of that time. Talk about was it was it mostly the inspiration from that trip that you just told us about that gave you the idea to make sure that they were represented as part of this project? It was totally that trip. Yeah, I, because I I wanted that element in this in the this project, but I didn't know what it would be or how to have it happen. And again, that just fell into my lap. He's, oh, do you want to go to the slave graveyard tomorrow? Yes, very much so. Uh, so yeah, that was it. And I came home that that night, or not home, but back to their place. And he, this guy's a banjo player, and he had the banjo in a weird, really strange tuning. And I just wrote a song about about that, you know, about the John Boston character, George Avery character, which also I changed completely around. But uh, it was a very moving experience for me. And that set the stage for everything else. And I decided I wanted to have a a greater representation of what a funeral ceremony for African-Americans or enslaved Africans would be at that time. And uh, my wife and I went to uh, southern Manhattan near City Hall, where there's a slave graveyard down there, which was unearthed. 25 years ago, however long ago, while they were excavating for some building. And I met with a historian down there, and there was a little bit of a film, but didn't give much information, and he didn't have a lot to say as to what the actual ceremony was. And in a book about the banjo, I happened to find a discussion of an enslaved funeral service, not service, but ceremony, uh, and it mentioned the instruments that would be used, which would be a box of pebbles would be used as percussion, and a jawbone from an animal with a you'd scrape a stick across it, uh, and the hand claps, and then people would be walking around this burial mound, and so that's what I recreated here. Oh, how cool! And I happened to find, and I was doing some other research, and found lyrics that were written down by this. Colonel, I think it was, who uh, was in charge of a black regiment in 1862 or three. And he wrote down lyrics of the songs that his soldiers were singing. And one of them was, I know Moonrise, was that lyric. And I saw that and went, oh, my God, this is too amazing. This is so perfect. And I asked Catherine Russell to write, to sing, make up some music for it, which she did. Mm -hmm. And that's, so she wrote the music for it. The lyrics are from this you know, from 1863 or thereabouts from this black regiment. And she did all the percussion. And there was another situation where my engineer, Lawson White, uh, 
is there. And, and I have, actually have a jawbone here at home, and I forgot to bring it to Brooklyn to the recording studio. And I said, oh, God, Lawson, I wish I had a jawbone. He said, oh, I've got one right here. And he just <laughs> pulled one out. He had a jawbone. I'm like, how is that possible? And he did. He's one of these magical guys, I guess. I don't know what else to say. So, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, it really seems like you pulled it out of a hat. Almost, almost. Almost literally. literally just, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, so that that's fascinating. So yeah, the the lyrics from that account fleshed out with that description and just recreated. That's that's really cool. So then the next couple were performed by you you already mentioned Guy Davis and we'll talk about his performance absolutely because that's something that needs to be acknowledged. But we we should also I should make you talk about the banjo that you used on leaving this lonesome land was which is the first song that was told from the viewpoint of that black grave digger right and sung by Guy so talk about that banjo we are after all still on the the banjo podcast yes. so let's let's talk about that it's a replica of a Boucher or Boucher Boucher I think banjo uh, from eighteen the eighteen forties and Boucher was a drum maker in Baltimore. And he may have gotten together with Joel Walker Sweeney, who's credited with being the first white to play banjo, although that's kind of hard to exactly say, but he's credited with that. And the Boucher, the banjo is tuned down to D, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, with the fourth string down fourth to G. Uh, and it's fretless. And originally I had nylon strings on there, but now I have I changed it to gut strings, and it just has this really funky plunky sound on it so uh, that's the banjo I used on there and it's just has this wonderful sound that I love playing it and I'm, I'm playing it more it was what they called in the mid 1800s stroke style but we today would call claw hammer so it's a downstroke style that I'm playing. yeah and I, I guess was there any or to what degree did you have to decide obviously that method of playing is the most period correct in terms of this civil war era to what degree did you feel drawn to do even more of that than happened on the album? I felt zero <laughs> uh, <laughs> pressure to, okay, you have to write in the style of music from that period. And I, I worry that people who might like Civil War music from that era will hear these tunes and go, wait a minute, what? This has nothing <laughs> to do with that era at all. No, I, I just, that is one song well, of course, uh, I know Moonrise turned out to be that. I mean, we can only guess at what the music sounded like, but that's pretty period, as is uh, uh, Leaving This Lonesome Land, has that kind of a sound. And I had my son, Sean Trishka, do, uh, funny, he has the same last name as I do, uh, doing hand pats on that. And then I had found this harmonica player who uh, I worked with at the Berkeley College of Music because I was teaching up there for about seven or eight years, and he was one of the students that came through. And he's incredible. Uh, he can do Howard Levy things, who used to play with the Flecktones. Uh, still plays with the Flecktones, actually. He came and went and came back. And uh, you know, can play chromatically on the diatonic harp. And, and I had him do the harmonica playing on that. And then, of course, Guy Davis did the vocal on that. And it just it's incredible what Guy did on that. So, yeah, definitely Guy's performance, and especially in the letter from John Boston, is... It, pretty intense and he he really delivers and this kind of brings me back to what i was asking about how you produce singers is how do you i don't know is there a technique or to conjure up that type of connection with the material it, it's it's a lot to expect somebody to walk in as a musician and, and feel as strongly about your project as you do so is there a way that you try to make that happen I can't. It's a great question. No, I, I don't feel like that's the case. I think the material itself will allow people to have that kind of emotion. And maybe not on the first take, but if you do four or five, six, seven takes, you get deeper into the song. And in the case of a few of the songs with Michael Daves, like the General and the Gambler song, we'd done that on stage. And, and also the Walt Whitman Oh, Captain, My Captain. We had done those three mm -hmm. songs for a while on stage already, so he, Michael had a, time, had a chance to work with those. But in terms of Guy Davis, he just really got into the material, and I didn't realize to what extent his parents hadn't, the gene pool worked in him 
because his, his parents are Ossie Davis and Ruby D, two of the most celebrated black actors, actress, depending on how you want to look at that, uh, mm-hmm. there ever were. And they're, they're both in Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, uh, as a for instance, and other okay. movies, of course, as well. So those are, that's his lineage, those amazing actors. So when he did the, the letter from John Boston, we did three takes of that, and it got more intense with every take because the story that you, you read in that letter is just so incredibly intense. It's a letter from John Boston to his wife. He's escaped from Maryland and is up north somewhere, and his wife, he left her enslaved. And so if we do not meet here on earth, we'll meet where Jesus reigns in heaven. Is I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And by the third take, Guy Davis was getting very emotional because it's such an incredibly intense letter. And so... You hear the emotion as it comes towards the end. He's he's all, he's choking up, and that's real. You must make yourself content that I am free from all the slaver's lash. Contented, I am free. I want you to write as soon as you can without delay. Your affectionate husband, John Boston. That wasn't like, okay, I'll make the sound emotional. He really was going through that. Yeah, it seems like it. And it definitely, it, it struck me that in a parallel universe, you, you might have not been able to get these type of performances, but I really think that they they really put the cap on the album that you were able to get these authentic types of feelings from these people. So however it happened, whether <laughs> whether it's you or the performers or a combination, uh, it, it's really great. Oh, I'm glad you feel that way. I really want to stop on the track titled Dearest Friend and Only Lover. And that, similar to um, some of these others that we've talked about, is you got the lyrics in the form of an old letter and you wrote music around it and an arrangement. And I think the, the production on this is just fascinating in terms of the musical movements and the overlapping conversational singing. I, I guess I don't have a specific question other than like what strikes you when you read this letter versus this other letter. Do you know that this is the one that you can make this very involved, as it turns out, piece of music out of? Well, actually, it wasn't like one letter and another letter. It was actually sections from different letters from different people. Oh, Okay. I think I tried in the beginning, let's okay, this is a great letter and this is a great letter. And then I realized mm. it's not all, I can't use all of this. And then I just decided, I, I mean, you can just go online and find Civil War letters from husbands to yeah. wives and um, back and forth. And so I would just look at some of these letters and find lines that would work until I had a full letter from each, but trying to find the most moving and poignant moments in both. Uh, so they were constructed from a variety of different letters, both north and south. But these are human emotions, you know, no matter the side, we're all people. And they, these are people that were going through this terrible experience. And and so that's what I tried to do with that. And then at the end, you're talking about these overlapping vocals. And that was from Broadway technique, you know, having been to a bunch right. of shows and and thinking about this as a theatrical production where you'll have people singing to each other, you know, usually lovers singing to each other or husband and wife. And you, you can sort of, you, you know, you need a stereo spectrum to hear, okay, what, what are they singing? But they're overlapping each other. Pray for your safe 
And that was really hard to put together to, to make that happen. But again, with Michael Davis and Maura O'Connell, and I wanted to bring Maura's character back rather than, okay, because there, there are not enough women in this story. I mean, it's, it's the Civil War, so it's obviously going to be male-dominated, but, but I wanted to have Maura's presence be felt again, and not to mention mm. Maura's amazing singing. Uh, so that's why I wanted to have these letters back and forth just to add, again, a more human quality so it's not all battle and, you know, it's not all about the war. It's this other side of it. So I wrote all the music for it on the banjo, but the string arrangement was done by a guy named Greg Pliska, which is one of the only names that rhymes with Trishka, almost. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, That's a good catch. Yeah, and I'd worked with him before uh Steve Martin had asked me to play and put together a band for a thing he did on on um, the Delacorte Theater in New York City, part of uh, the public theater uh, production. They have these free Shakespeare in the Park things. And we did As You Like It with bluegrass music, <laughs> period <laughs> bluegrass music. And Greg Pliska had written the incidental music for that. And so he did the, the string arrangements for these. And he's incredible. He did an incredible job. Yeah, it turned out really cool. Uh, and then again, talk about your banjo technique on this one, because that one, that's a little different as well, right? Yeah, that's just bare-fingered banjo playing, uh, which comes in at the end. I just didn't really hear it earlier, so it just let it all be strings. Then at the very end, the, the strings hold, and then the banjo comes in at the end. Uh, and I'm just finger-picking that music, which, again, is not period, it's not scrug style, and I just figured picks would be too, you know, too intense. I wanted something a little gentler for this. I mean, it's a love song. We don't need blistering, pick, picking banjo playing going on. So I, I, right. I took off the picks for that. Nice. Uh, skipping ahead to... And that was my Deering uh, Golden Clipper banjo on that. Right, your main bluegrass instrument, but just played without the picks. Right, yeah. yep. Then skipping ahead to... Oh, Captain, My Captain by the classic bluegrass songwriter, Walt Whitman. And fun fact, the, the night before I got these, these tracks from you to, to preview for the interview, I watched uh, Dead Poets Society with my family. So it seemed really perfect that, oh, here's, uh, here's, here's this again. But uh, it really does somehow sound like a real, quote-unquote, bluegrass song, the way you, you guys do it. it. It could almost be like a Del McCurry band song or something like that. It's pretty great. Yeah. I don't know. Anything to, to else to say about that? I just wanted to remark about how uncanny it is that you keep managing to to find these old prose and uh, or poetry and um, wrestle them into to some good bluegrass sounding music. Well, it's funny early-ish on in this project, um, my wife just, she always has these great ideas. She's an amazing, her brain is just always coming up, coming up with great ideas. And, you know, we were talking about the project and she said, you know, what would really, what would really work is uh, Captain, my Captain, Captain, my Captain, as a song. She already had that in her head that that would work. And so I said, well, let me try this. My Captain does not answer And it did. It worked great. Uh, you know, I put some music to it, and I wish I'd written the lyrics, but uh, Waltman, Walt Whitman did a pretty good job with it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. You know, can I go back to the um, My Only Lover, the, the song before with Maura and Michael? I just mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to mention was when I did this American Songwriter magazine thing, they said, oh, and what tips do you have for songwriters? And I went, you know ask about banjo tips, I got a million of them. Songwriting tips, uh -huh. you know, I had a kind of scramble. I, didn't, I wasn't prepared for that. And I haven't taught songwriting. But one thing that I did here, and what, what I would say to songwriters is they, they don't have to necessarily rhyme because when I was first putting that song together, I was trying to find these, you know, quotes from letters and 
find them in ways that they would, they would rhyme. And it was just too hard. I just couldn't really make it happen. And I figured, mm-hmm. these don't have to rhyme. I'm just going to have them sing, and they don't have to rhyme. And they don't. And it works, and, and at least to my way of thinking. So I just wanted to mention that. As, for any of you songwriters out there, in my humble opinion, and I'm just getting started as a songwriter, but they don't always have to rhyme. In fact, there's one point in, in uh, Leaving This Lonesome Land where I had three lines and I needed a fourth line and I couldn't come up with a rhyme. It's just I was really awkward and it was forced. And I just decided I just won't have anything there. It'll just be a little instrumental flourish for that. And that also works. So there are, you know, no rules. Just, I mean, rules are good, but if something isn't working, make up some rules. Yeah, don't, no need to force it. Right. And then the last track is basically the other half of the bookend, and it's in the form of the FDR speech performed by John Lithgow. And basically, the, it, it bookends the concept of this return to Gettysburg moment, strong elements of burying the hatchet, water under the bridge type of unity messages. And it, it's hard not to hear that and not, at least be aware of how it applies to to some current events and we don't get too political on this podcast but i don't know is there is there anything that you want to say about the relevance of of that message i know you didn't probably originally intend it to be this social commentary but now that it kind of is uh what what say you about that <laughs> uh that was actually well I'll go back to the, this 1938 reunion of Northern and Southern soldiers who were at the Battle of Gettysburg. And mm-hmm. while researching something else, I happened on this video, uh, a film of these soldiers getting together over a fence in 1938, the 75th reunion of the Gettysburg Battle. FDR was there. And you see these guys who in their 90s, late 80s and into their 90s, some wearing their original uniforms, the North on one side, the South on the other side, shaking hands, maybe, you know, 15 or 16 older gentlemen doing this. And I thought, God, this is really poignant. And this is, and this was, you know, while things were as divisive as they are today. And I thought this is a beautiful image. And, you know, I don't want to hit people over the head with a message, but we're all in this together. And, and this is a beautiful healing moment. And that would you know, was the message I wanted to have here. Let's let's get together and, and we have differences, but let's respect our differences. And and so that was that tune. Uh, I wrote the song "This Favored Land" off of that as a result of that seeing that video. Mm-hmm. And that that actually is my favorite song on the album. Is "This Favored Land"? I love the way that came out and the way Phoebe Hunt sang that, and just the bass playing, everything on there. I just love. Um, and then. I looked at the FDR speech and found that, you know, that part of it that talks about that, you know, we are now under one flag now. And as someone pointed out, the attitudes of those gentlemen shaking hands hadn't changed necessarily, but (laughs) as an image, you know, because I was almost going to scrap that. And originally the album was going to be called this favorite land because that's taken from a, a, um, Abraham Lincoln's, I think, second inaugural address. He talks about this favorite land. And I thought, yes, that's perfect. And that's the name of the song. And and then, of course, it's not this favorite land for everybody. And so I decided to change it to Shall We Hope, which is a taken, it's a phrase from uh, a poem by Phyllis Wheatley, who was this woman, an enslaved woman who came over as a teenager or maybe an eight-year-old from Africa and brought to Boston mm-hmm. and ended up in an upper crust Boston family was taught to speak and write, you know, speak English and write, right. And she had became this poet who, uh, she sent a poem to George Washington who responded. She wrote a poem about Washington who responded. Here's this enslaved girl with nothing who becomes this, you know, well-known poet of her time. And so shall we hope comes from that, from her poem. The first published black poet if i if i am have my history right i feel like i looked it up not too long ago i think that's um, correct i could be wrong that sounds right and anyway, i can't i can't totally say yes but i think so yeah so so that wraps it up i know we skipped a few songs but we we do want to come back to just the the overall sound quality you mentioned he had four microphones on the banjo i'm definitely 
somewhat of a, a tech geek and interested in that. So uh, I know you say you don't remember completely what everything was, but to the extent that you do remember some studio secrets, I'd love to to hear about anything like that. Yeah, I don't I don't have the information in front of me, like which mics he used. And he might have used different mics at different times. And I, I need to get with him on that. Um, in fact, I asked him and whatever, it's it's a long story. But one <laughs> of the things that he, he would have usually one over the neck, one mic over the neck, and then two over the head. You know, you don't want it right on your hand because then you hear the pick noise when you're using picks. Mm-hmm. So avoid having a mic right on top of your right hand. It could be down low. And I think he, it varied from time to time, but that generally he would do that. But then what's interesting is the fourth mic, he would have, to, you know, as you're playing, it would be to your right, kind of aimed at the resonator or maybe just a little in front of the resonator, but not right in front, but off to the side. Yeah. Off to the right. And uh, I did some recording recently with my son and this keyboard player up in Maine, and we tried it there, and it really helps. It really kind of fills out the sound and gives it a richer sound somehow. So it's one of those secrets you wouldn't ordinarily think about. But I've been in so many recording situations and had so many different mic placements, and I'm not a techie guy. I don't, you know, because I've been in front of so many different kinds of mics, I don't have one thing that I use. But I was doing this one session years ago when I was living in New York City, maybe in the 80s or early 90s, probably the 80s. And this woman who was the engineer placed the mic like over my head, about two feet over my head and off to one side. And I wasn't going to say anything. I figured, well, it's her studio. She knows what's going on. And she got a great banjo sound. It was like four feet from the banjo. It was nowhere near the banjo. It was over way over my head and, and yet it sounded great so you're saying the best place to capture a banjo sound is far away from the banjo they sound the best the well, further away you get from them yeah actually is, is the information i'm taking especially when you're in new york city like on the street like on 42nd <laughs> street if you're on a studio on 38th street on 42nd street would be probably good yes optimal mic placement yeah yes of course you heard it here first <laughs> And of course, we skipped around, but I want to give you the floor if there's any other acknowledgments or stories or, or any other comments that you want to make sure people take note of as they listen to this. Um, no, I think we've really covered all the bases you, you know, much more thoroughly than most of the interviews I've done. And I really appreciate that, especially since this is ostensibly a banjo podcast and we're talking in great detail about the song. So, no, I really appreciate that and the homework you've done and uh, caring enough to go to all this research about it. So I appreciate that. Uh, where do people find this and where do they purchase it? And all of that, all that business, give us, give us websites. Uh, well, you can go to Tony <laughs> I, I guess I'll plug that. Uh, you can uh-huh. order it there. I've got a store, which I just uh, started finally after all these years, once this came out uh, and you can get face masks. And if there are any left, you can get some banjo socks there also. Uh, one-stop shopping for all your shopping needs. Um, and Amazon has it and uh, the other, I won't mention the other places. Uh, like I won't mention uh, Spotify or Apple Music because then you won't buy the CD. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, if, if you want the CD with all the information on it and graphics, my son actually did the, all the uh, graphics on this, did all the artwork on it. So, I mean, he didn't do the cover, which is uh, a period representation of the Gettysburg battle, but he did all the uh, design for it. Cool. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a great presentation too. And I got, I I ended up getting a a font. I researched civil war fonts to use as fonts for the, for the artwork. And uh, so it's period fonts as well. You know, the more I talk to you about this, the more I realize how much homework you did on every little aspect of this. And it's really impressive, even the font you you drilled down on. So that's really cool to hear about. You're very devoted to your craft. Oh, well, I wanted to be right. So, you know, after all these years of doing, working on this project. <laughs> yeah, now now's not the time to, to slack off, I guess. Right. All right, Tony. Well, thanks a lot for your time and definitely encourage everyone to check out the new album. Really appreciate it, Keith. A whole lot. I really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, thanks. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. 
Thank you once again, especially to Dan Harder and Amy Thorne, today's Patreon supporters of the show. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter of yourself. You can get shout outs. You can get invited to the VIP lounges and all sorts of other special treats there. There are t-shirts. You you know, you can check out the t-shirts at banjopodcast.com and, you know, see what there is to see. That's another way to support the show. Contact me, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. So that's going to do it for this episode. Everyone take care and I will see you next time. (laughs) 